Welcome to the Miller Oddcast, a brand new podcast from the Missouri Review. For over 40 years now, TMR has been discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Our quarterly magazine appears in print, digital, and audio formats. Learn more at MissouriReview.com. Welcome to the Missouri Review's Miller Oddcast. This is episode 22, you lovely internet you. Today we're gorgeously dealing with Daniel Dyer's When Staring Into the Horizon's Headlights, a finalist for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize in Prose. Daniel M. Dyer is strikingly handsome, overwhelmingly intelligent, and constantly sarcastic. A California native, he has been published by the Dallas Review, Malibu Magazine, and several other publications before he released his debut book, When Did This Bullshit Become Poetry?, which charted as an Amazon number one new release and bestseller. He's the co-founder of the videography company Visual Candy, which he operates alongside his brother. When he's not hunched over his weather desk, he's most likely taking photos of uncomfortable squirrels or being loud in otherwise quiet public locations. Above all, he is extremely grateful for this opportunity. This short story will be included in a book of similarly styled tales. The goal was to make you, the reader, have a good old-fashioned cry, or at least crave a good cry. I hope I've accomplished that goal. Thank you so much for giving it your time. You're about to give it your time, and stick around for me and Bailey Boyd discussing it afterwards. Here we go. It's Daniel Dyer's When Staring Into the Horizon's Headlights. The storm clouds tailgate my bumper. They've been gaining on me since I peeled out of Tahoe. One of the locals asked me if I had four-wheel drive, or at least a pair of chains for my tires, so I wouldn't hydroplane into the afterlife. When I explained to him how I had neither, his face soured with confusion. Are you clinically insane, boy? He asked in between dense loogies of chewing tobacco. Or just stupid? It wasn't the first time somebody's asked me that. A river slithers next to the highway, racing me out of the Donner Pass. Every time I stop to get a photo, I have ten minutes before globs of snow stacks on my shoulders and clecks in my hair. Mother Nature's dandruff. I'm in a staring contest with the elements and refuse to blink. The tin can is in my backpack, stockpiling rust as it waits to arrive at our destination. Wherever that may be. Anyway... I was slugging through Squaw Valley's metallic snake just a few minutes ago, losing what little sanity I had left to the symphony of horns and tail lights, when a very logical question dripped into my thoughts. What the fuck am I doing? They all have other places to be in the morning. I don't. I'm at my destination, wherever I decide to park my car. My living room, my kitchen, my bed all rhythmically bouncing atop four 1989 Westfalia wheels. The windshield wipers squeal in sub-zero octaves. The AC wheezes in complaint of being set on high for too long. I sing along to Jim Morrison lyrics about drooling sunsets in Los Angeles asphalt. The tin can is the only thing in my car that is motionless and mute. What else is there to say? My bones are icicles, yet my heart is a furnace. My lips are chapped canyons, yet they are still smiling. 
My hands feel like they've been stung by six generations of wasps, yet they still handle the wheel with a suffocating grip. There is a balance, and I am tiptoeing closer and closer to its intoxicating center. That being said, living out of your car is tricky. It's cramped and complicated, stiff and stuffy, a mental marathon with no distinguishable finish line and intruding distance. When you add 10 degree weather and a six foot five gangly 22 year old, it's an entirely different story. It's a contest between the mind and the soul, a trial of one's spiritual fiber. The choice is mine, gorgeous or grueling. This is life since I've had the tin can. Driving in cruise control straight into the taunting unknown, gifting my eyes with new views, vaccinating myself with fresh horizons, slurping the liquors of life until I'm good and full and demand a refill. This is it. I feel Kerouac's ghost breathing down my neck. Neil Cassidy applauds me from the grave. Unpredictability rolls a joint in the passenger seat. He's good company. A bit strange, but hey, all the fun ones are. I hear the tin can collide into the back of my seat with a clunk, as if it's asking me how much longer until we reach our destination. But that's the exact question I've yet to answer. Where the hell are we going? There's this campsite nestled in the nucleus of the Sequoia National Forest, where the granite mountainscapes slice straight into the water's placidity. Trees pepper the rocky formations, same with deer and bears, creeks and wildflowers. That could be the spot. There's this trail along the lonely outskirts of Reno. It's roughly seven miles of jagged switchbacks. That's another option, no doubt. Then again, there's always Big Sky Montana, where the fields vomit green sprawl for endless acres, or the Oregon coast, where the coastal anatomy of sand and rock wink at you with a tan shimmer. Can't forget Big Sur, which is basically God's rough draft of heaven on earth. One of these places will be the tin can's destination. Something nudges my peripheral vision. Maybe it's Kerouac or McCandless or one of the other prophets of the road. I'm not sure. All I know is that my car now idles on the shoulders, talkative gravel. I turn off the ignition and listen to the gravel gossip underneath my tires. Right off the side of the highway is this blotch of black dirt that splinters off into every direction, like a water balloon plummeted from the stratosphere and exploded on the ground's flesh. Straws of yellow grass bleed into the faraway snow. Everything around me oozes with a golden white hue. It's only me here. For miles and miles, just me. It's as stunning as it is humbling. One lone phone wire etches through the countryside, slicing through the anatomy of this natural splendor. I grab my pack, the tin can clothed in duct tape and rust. I walk, I walk and walk and walk right toward the yawning horizon. The blood circuiting through my vascular canals is slowing to a freeze. My body demands movement. I must move faster. I decide to jog out toward the splintered blotch of black land. But jogging is a bodily tease. A tiny sip from an otherwise giant glass. My body craves total mobility. Legs scissored into lunges. Arms flailing in violent rotations. All of it. So the jogging only lasts so long before I'm running running until my breath anchors in my lungs and my smile stretches past my face, legs widening in clumsy strides of curiosity. Every time the wind bites into my cheeks, I wince with adrenaline. 
Every time my feet slip out from under my weight, I laugh with alacrity. Every time I think of turning back, I end up going further. I laugh at how the naked trees shiver in the wind and how they must hear me. Before I can brace myself, my right foot hooks into the wooden tentacles of a stump. My knee winks at me with a gash. I laugh at the blood, give it a cold kiss. I laugh at the trees and the pain and the glass ornament we call life. After that, I get back up to my feet. I look around. My eyes drink in the view in big, colorful gulps. The car is at least a mile back near the highway. It might have a flat tire, or three. Not too sure. This is the destination. It must be. I'm ambushed by beauty. A drifter in a city of trees. These are my kind of skyscrapers. The kind that tango in the breeze. The kind that are immune to cell service and bad traffic. Yes, this is where the tin can shall stay. It makes sense. I take the silver container out of my backpack, the duct tape still wrapped around the metal in a tight, sticky hug. My pocket knife performs the surgery, splitting the strip of gray tape in one clean slice. I haven't looked at my mother's ashes since the funeral. My grandfather gave me the tin can, the same one she used to collect marbles with when she was a little girl the days when her laughter would pour in through the open windows from the front porch. He said that I would know what to do with her cremains. He argued that if you're her only child, you're the only one who would know. That too makes sense, I suppose. I stare at the can, but I don't see ash. I see Bugs Bunny dangling a carrot above an irritated hunter. I see a bag of flaming hot Cheetos waiting for me after school. I see me bargaining my newest Lego creation for a bowl of Cocoa Puffs, something I still see as a fair trade. I see talkative walks next to the talkative ocean, her and I, talks that were strung together in such a way that they weighed more than a fleet of freight ships hauling alchemy across the seven seas. She always loved the cold, the unforgiving cold. She loved Coca-Cola and cigarettes, Saturday Night Live and Jim Croce lyrics. She loved bulging fields tucked underneath vanilla skies, and when the horizon would weep down on my bedroom window, she would tell me there was no need to worry. How God and the devil were just upstairs, arguing over a good game of chess. Yes, this is the destination. This is the gravesite for my mother. So I tilt the can over. The atoms of ash lock lips with crumbs of oxygen. They dance above my head. They stir and spiral until both of my mothers are one again. I want to cry. I want to scream at the horizon and flip off the clouds. I really do, but I can't. I'm too cold. I'm too numb. Before I trudge back to my home on wheels, I squint into the foggy abyss and see the eastern Sierras gazing back at me in all their poetic glory. In their presence, I feel how I should. Tiny. But in their presence, I also feel like I can lasso a hurricane and stow it in my back pocket. Like I can floss my teeth with lightning and clean my ears with thunder. Like I can make the woman who put me on this orbiting blue pebble proud. My eyelids are anvils. The weight of exhaustion balloons on my shoulders. It's a necessary feeling, 
a sensation only ever earned, never simply taken, a sensation that drapes over the body when a person has finally said farewell. I walk away, and as I do, I hope for the skies to scoop me up in their cloudy confines, to swallow me whole and usher me into some other world. But then I look around once more and realize, maybe they already have. Maybe they already have. Hello, oddcasters, oddcasters, oddcast listeners, oddcastabots. I like nicknames. Uh, we have just been listening to "When Staring into the Horizons." Headlights. Yeah, "When Staring into the Horizons" headlights uh, by Daniel Dyer, and I'm here again with Bailey Boyd, our contest editor, and we have thoughts. Uh, the first, the the first thought that I had as I was listening to this uh, for the first time was just how how consciously it's invoking. Uh, especially the spirit of kind of Jack Kerouac and nodding at Neil Cassidy, especially when we're talking about on the road. I mean, it starts with, with gusto kind of being pursued by storms on, on, on the road, literally on the road uh, with the echoes of kind of uh, locals who fear for the narrator's safety uh, in his ears. And I remember as a young, as a young reader and an aspiring writer reading on the road and being really caught up in the uh, the you know the motion and the uh, and the verve and the jazz of the of Kerouac's prose, the kind of breathlessness and the kind of like the chase that it is. And I also remember thinking um, at a certain point, a couple of years after that, that okay, so they're on the road, they're driving somewhere, but are they driving? anywhere do they ever get anywhere and i think that this uh this is really playing with that idea uh it 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 makes this kind of faint toward kind of like finding a destination and and are using the word destination to kind of query whether or not there is a destination at all uh it's not until much later that we get uh, with with some certainty that there is a destination specifically for uh, something that's only lightly, lightly dealt with in the beginning and that becomes clear only more towards the end. What were your initial kind of like notions, Bailey? I agree. Um, I definitely get the sense that the, that there is a sense of reaching a destination at the end too. So there is that sense of I have arrived. There is a ending point to to this journey, um, and almost as a pause on a greater on a greater journey, right? So um, the the scattering of the mother's ashes becomes a becomes a place where this character can pause and recognize the kind of returning of two mothers into one. I think is the phrase that the um, that Dyer uses in this, in this story. And there is that sense that, okay, now I can kind of go on and into other arenas um, or other on, onto other journeys. I, I really liked this piece for, for kind of that greater message 
for all of the the different layers that you've been speaking about, Mark. I, I also loved this piece on a kind of a craft level. One of our listeners said that this this piece and its descriptions of the landscapes and the transitions is very poetic. And, and I agree with that. Um, I think this piece kind of taught me to look at things a little bit differently. I, I was saying earlier, it almost reminded me kind of almost as a stop motion because we're with that present tense, um, we're, we're, getting, we're getting these really close-ups, these really close-up looks at, at, at just things like thoughts or the landscape um, or the AC wheezing out of the vents, right? So each thing is treated with such significance and then put together into this obviously very significant journey. And so I thought that was really done, done well and folded onto each other in nice ways. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that as much, but now that you bring it up, it also, just what you're talking about there reminds me of the, the feeling that one has if one is kind of like holding down a kind of uh, horizontal arrow on one's photos, say. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, each specific photo itself is meaningful. It matters. But as they, as they scroll through, I'm thinking particularly of my kind of like MacBook, but you get a kind of movie that you still are aware is composed of stills. I think there's that. I mean, it makes me think of certain nineties videos. Uh, like I'm thinking of a wallflowers video, I think right now, or the se several of which use that same kind of that same, uh, you know, compositional, uh, uh, you know, kind of strategy. I think in part, to slow, to slow things down, to, to make us kind of appreciate that um, it's not just this big fluid ongoing, you know, kind of like narrative that we're a part of, but, but things that have significant moments that, that need reflection or appreciation for their singularity. Um, I hadn't really thought about uh, road stories for, for, for a while. And I think it's because lately over the past, you know, maybe decade, for me and maybe more for other people, maybe less. Our culture has, has been so, so indoorsy. <laughs> so like we, we live more of our lives online and, uh, and especially over the past year, kind of like we've really gotten up close to a kind of sequestration. That's really refreshing to see this kind of like this, this bounding outward I mean, where the car actually does become, it's, it's almost an old romantic trope for, for the, the open road, right? This, yep. this vehicle becomes a literal vehicle for being able to, to access or, or make oneself kind of like familiar to nature and outdoors. I totally agree. That's best. I love it when you totally agree. Um, and again, you know, I, I do love that. I love that faint. I mean, at, the, at first, as I'm listening to this, I hear tin can. And I'm, I'm just like, oh, well, that's the car. But no, that's the tin can is, is what holds his mother's ashes. And when he finally realizes a destination for his mother, as, as you said, the car has conveyed him to a spot where he leaves the car. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's all these ways that are, are, are both in conversation with what I think are more traditional or romanticized kind of like road journeys, mm -hmm. but also 
start to realize and kind of make material the actual point of those journeys, which is, is, is not to lose oneself, is not to escape anything, but to realize oneself in the midst of material reality and to find some appreciation and significance there. Yeah. And I think this, this story ends up finding that and the character ends up finding that even if it's only finding that in reflection or in um, acceptance or in other ways. But I, I do think this does arrive, um, this story arrives at a, at a certain point where that feels, that feels to the reader and to the character like that there was, there was a, there was a destination here and it's been reached. A rare gift to be sure. All right, oddcasters. Um, that's it for this week. And we'll, uh, we'll look forward to you listening to us next week. All right. This is the part of the oddcast where Bailey waves. Waving. I am waving. <laughs> Bye. Right. Bye. Thanks for being here with us for Miller Oddcast number 22. Much gratitude to Daniel Dyer for sharing his work with us and letting us give it to the internet. You're welcome, internet. It's an honor. Stay tuned for Miller Oddcast Lucky number 23 coming soon. We hope you've been enjoying the Oddcast, and remember, if they've inspired you to record your own creative work, whether in poetry, prose, humor, or audio documentary, submissions are open now for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize. The deadline for this year's contest is June 15th. Learn all about it at our website. Thanks also to Missouri Review Contest Editor Bailey Boyd and to Patricia Miller for her generous support of the Miller Audio Prize. Finally, TMR is open for submissions year-round, and we remain dedicated to discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Be heard. Give us the opportunity to discover you. Submit your work today. Learn more at MissouriReview.com.